Chapter 4. Problems can be assets. 1. From the perspective of the political left, climate crisis and inequality present a clear and urgent reason to fight capital with traditional tools, carbon taxes and large public works projects like those outlined in the Green New Deal, that will redistribute wealth and enforce environmental protections. Rather than encouraging incremental and ineffectual belt tightening among the smallest offenders, the left demands a radical realignment that legally enforces change among the biggest industrial offenders. If ever there was a moment, they argue, to seize the means of production and defeat capital absolutely, it is this moment of planetary crisis. On the extreme right, superbucks again confuse and conflate ideology. The flimsiest stories can hold back mountains of distressing signals. In the United States, leadership has found remarkable success by echoing sentiments like those of Republican Senator Jim Inhofe, who has long led a dogged campaign to convince the world that climate change is a hoax designed to satisfy the ever-growing demand of environmental groups for money and power and other extremists who simply don't like capitalism, free markets, and freedom, one for many on the right. Whether extreme or moderate, climate change is an impertinence that disregards the Boundaries of Nations, one of the prized inventions of the modern mind. Non-human chemical agency is also catalyzing the migration of humans who transgress these borders. Entrenched political camps, with tragicarmic bluster, retreat into ideological loops migrating people and suspicious chemicals in the air are enemies. But, contradicting its own ideological rhetoric, economic liberalism would nevertheless like to possess this capacity for free cross-border movements for their own enterprises. Lying somewhere between the poles of a left-right political spectrum is the Breakthrough Institute. The group has drawn critique from the likes of activist Naomi Klein and art historian T.J. Demos, but it also once counted Bruno Latour among its senior fellows. Upbeat and seemingly untroubled by the arrogance of a self-reflexive Anthropocene, the Breakthrough Institute is a believer in the great progressive story of human technologies and their interventions in the world. Continued modernization associated with a liberal tradition is the answer to the climate change dilemma. Nuclear power and other new technologies are the means to decouple economies from ecosystems so that urbanization can concentrate development and encourage rewilding of the Earth's surface. Point to the Institute's manifesto, written in the language of a calming newsletter from a financial consultant, reminds its readers where power lies. The refined and insulating voiceover of the reasonable man suggests that everyone take a deep breath and believe in a long tradition. They write, too often, modernization is conflated, both by its defenders and critics, with capitalism, corporate power, and laissez-faire economic policies. We reject such reductions. What we refer to when we speak of modernization is the long-term evolution of social, economic, political, and technological arrangements in human societies toward vastly improved material well-being, public health, resource productivity, economic integration, shared infrastructure, and personal freedom. Point three in an article published in Breakthrough Journal in 2011, Latou endorses the position of Breakthrough founders insofar as it refocuses attention not on an alienation from technology but rather on an interdependence between human and non-human factors in the environment. And yet while calling for this more informed balance, Latou seems to be drawn back into the same modernist traps he has critiqued. This new approach, he writes, can modernize modernization in a post-environmental moment point for often, when dilemmas do not respond to pure political platforms or modern solutions, no sense can be made of them. 
This book opened with a list of these persistent failures and stalemates related to climate change as well as pandemic, race, inequality, technology, and migration. Markets continue to eliminate obstacles to profit until their subprime mortgages, offshore tax havens, and abusive workers create a financial crisis or a wave of fatalities. Technological and quantifiable proposals, based on everything from statistics to big data, continue to galvanize decision-making, even when they come with internal fallacies. The apparatus of national sovereignty, new technology, and free market autonomy continue to garner loyalties, even as they catalyze atmospheric processes outside of their controlling logics. In the wake of failure many problems reside on the deficit side of the ledger. They can only be a sad embarrassment, something that is discarded, hidden, or left behind. Problems are dark things that must be overcome or exposed. The failure of migrations within a national logic of inclusion or exclusion leaves a trail of stranded individuals who can only be observed as victims. After industrial retooling or financial crisis, shrinking cities and fields of rusting industrial remainders are caught in a stalemate and are only good for ruin porn. Even culture's most productive industries only know how to melt down and recycle these objects, an adjunct of the very heat, beat, and treat technologies that created them. After a cataclysmic storm or wildfire, properties and infrastructures can only be restored to their previous inadequate state. Problems have no utility. Perhaps with climate issues especially, familiar tragic plotlines shape the narratives. The solids and chemicals of human industry and environmental exploitation are usually surveyed as evidence of guilt to a soundtrack of brooding music. Given the polarized political scripts, there can only be good guys and bad guys, and nothing can be done until the bad guys are overthrown. Or, old sci-fi utopias or dystopias feature new technologies that are needed to rescue a discarded spaceship Earth, escape to another planet, or enhance a human body with special powers to overcome the crisis. Even as political purists accept nothing less than comprehensive solutions regarding climate, the issue also occupies intelligent minds with increasingly more precise measurements that do not necessarily promote change. And organizations that look to solutions and standards to contain problems and avoid failures may only foster the denial of information. Solutions present the logic of the loop. Just as the succession of technologies can be quite dumb, the elimination of problems can be equally dumb. 2. Without diminishing the damage and misery of climate dilemmas that leave behind pollutants, scarred landscapes, disease, and ongoing conflict, might there be resourceful approaches that address these failures in different ways? Rather than searching for solutions to eliminate problems, medium design can treat problems as potent resources. Problems carry with them needs and experiences that offer valuable, heavy information and prompt productive interplay. Perondo's paradox is a counterintuitive game theory positing that if you play a game with a high probability of losing, you will lose, but if you alternate between two games, each with a high probability of losing, you can begin to generate wins. The resulting graph of wins resembles a shallow sawtooth of incremental increases in numbers of winning games. And the process may actually behave like a ratchet, as if the losses create a kind of traction against which to make many small gains. Point five, just as the newness of technologies may be less important than the interplay between them, the elimination of problems may be less important than the interplay between them. Problems may only remain too segregated. Problems from any quarter can leaven or catalyze each other. Needs, problems, and even catastrophes can become resources. 
like a valence electron in a reactive element, need presents a potential to combine. As Gregory Bateson noted, zero is different from one, and its difference holds potential point six going further, positive one and negative one are the same distance from zero. They both possess the same potential for making a difference. Setbacks like those in the stories of Jane Eyre and Rosa Parks offered affordances that could be converted to assets. One need can be a resource to another need. The failure that might create a negative value or absence of value in some registers still has the potential to productively interact with other potentials. After Frederick Law Olmsted visited the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, he wrote about it in a short text for the nation. He measured the space of the damage, the ways that locations previously separated by dense buildings were now available to one another, and the distance from which dangerous heat could be felt, as well as the distance from the epicenter to which people and objects were scattered in the aftermath. Studying fire presented the possibility of a new landscape with new separations, vantage points, and visual corridors that would even help to prevent subsequent fires. Point seven soon after the successful expeditions to the North and South Poles in 1909 and 1911, the forester and polymath Benton Mackay identified an entirely different terra incognita. Mackay, largely remembered as the regional planner who conceived of the Appalachian Trail, was a truly eccentric thinker and visionary. In an article in 1925 and a book in 1928 entitled The New Exploration, he argued that man had used his technologies to chart and conquer the territorial limits of the planet, but now that entire apparatus had itself become a wilderness, an industrial wilderness. Man, in dispelling one wilderness, has created another, Mackay wrote. For the intricate equipment of civilization is in itself a wilderness. He has unraveled the labyrinth of river and coastline but has spun the labyrinth of industry. 8. Mackay's terra incognita was made of grids for electricity and automobiles, as well as a collection of other lines of flow for goods and population migration. It was a surface web, a working thing, a rough-hewn organism, a system. 9. For Mackay, this wilderness of civilization was a kind of geological formation, read not for its shape but for its recording of change and movement. Throughout his career, he treated this network like a fluvial or geological force with its own potentials and activities. Point 10 Capital has long been indexing various conditions in the world that serve its needs, and controlling that territory irrespective of political boundaries. Tourism territorializes the planet according to water temperatures and the color of sand. Manufacturing industries colonize the world with free zones located in countries with the cheapest possible labor and the most lenient labor and environmental laws. The global agricultural industry indexes hours of sunshine and available water. The oil and gas industry indexes a resource under the Earth's crust. Consider an alternative indexing of the world that, like Olmsted and Mackay, takes stock of the remainders and remnants, even the perceived failures of heavy industries as fresh resources in another ecology. While not new, these interplays continually generate emergent or underexploited relationships to mitigate against climate damage and violence. Working with the leavings and detritus of destructive capital would seem to be a capitulation, a submissive position that backs down from the fight for justice just at the moment when only the most sweeping changes to the economy have a chance of countering climate change. Here, it would seem, is just another example of incrementalism. 
but if it is crucial to begin a transformative process immediately, and in advance of overcoming a very durable political impasse between left and right-wing ideologies, there may even be an expeditious political advantage to designing an interplay of problems. As examples of interplay accumulate in this book, they often set aside a comprehensive approach that, in its purity, creates greater delays and deadlocks. Instead, as these interplays develop an imagination about multiple terms of exchange and a heavy portfolio of spatial values, they are often trying to more quickly locate resources and values in problems. Whether related to land readjustment or switching, resources may only be available for interplay through failure. Spatial assets are released from financial markets and financial abstractions so that they can be valued in different terms. Land readjustment becomes viable when a physical arrangement fails to deliver the necessary infrastructure or fails to reflect the full value that might benefit its inhabitants. Or failures of transit and failures of new transportation technologies to reduce congestion or deliver mobility, when combined in a switching protocol, deliver ridership to each other to become more viable. Again, design, usually seen as having to wait on either the defeat or the indulgence of capital, may have material that is not only immediately available but also in abundant supply. And with the same resourcefulness of the superbug, design can work on many fronts. For designers, as crucial as targeting and taxing the world's biggest oil companies is working behind their back on economies that offer fresh forms of readily available equity and employment to those of any ideological allegiance. Can shrinking cities, floodplains, garbage jays, or sprawling urban peripheries, with all of their alarming consequences in the form of fires, hurricanes, and thinning atmospheres, enter into new interdependencies with each other? Is it possible to identify a productive ecology between the very precipitates of political and environmental crisis? And does this interplay of problems have any chance of gaining sufficient scale to be effective? 3. Now looking more cumulatively at previous discussions, the following interplays experiment with a chemistry between problems that can address, not only inequality, structural racism, and automation, but also climate change. The valuable potentials imminent in arrangements are perhaps best illustrated when there are few resources that are valued in a customary way, even when there is very little, or even less than nothing, with which to work. If, like a ratchet, an interplay can gain leverage with a number of incremental moves, starting even from a need or deficit may make it easier to see the immensely fertile field of resources that are not part of abstracted or formalized markets of exchange. In a number of pilot projects in poor communities, the NGO Asia Initiatives facilitates a dialogue in which communities get together to determine their needs and use these needs as positive resources, even a form of currency. The community assigns a credit value to a task or service that reflects the degree of need in a quantity of what are called social capital credits. There may be a need to plant a tree, clean up a waterway, paint a wall, take care of the elderly, or help with children's education. Point 11 Performing any of these tasks earns the designated number of credits. Like blockchain tokens, the credits foil corruption because they cannot be stolen or used to buy merchandise in stores. But unlike tokens, they are a series of actions that cannot really be moneyized. They can only be redeemed for more things that the community needs, things like vaccinations, education, training, mobile phone talk time, or home improvements. A need is the resource as well as the material to be redeemed. 
the business of corroborating and managing a simple ledger of these activities requires no complicated algorithm because the entire community witnesses and acknowledges the change, and there is an online register for images and approvals of completed tasks. For every five credits earned by individuals, one community credit is banked in the community cash. The community can decide how to spend those credits for things like public toilets, schools, or street improvements. Outside aid is not only more effectively targeted, but its means of trading is actually already moving the material of an agreed-upon alteration. Asia Initiatives is conducting pilot projects with social capital credits worldwide, in Kumasi, Ghana, Kisuma, Kenya, and Washington, D.C. They also have projects in India, in Madurai, Amravati, Dehradun, and villages in Tamil Nadu, as well as a project associated with the Mumbai-Pune Expressway. In the Madurai project, the polluted Vaigaigai River is divided into segments, and cleaning one segment earns credits. This environmental problem, broken into manageable tasks, suggests that even larger projects can be tackled with similar collective efforts. Point 12 The next interplay reflects the know how of designers who, with few resources or small budgets, have long been designing combinate interplays between problems in space. The Society for the Promotion of Area Resource Centers, SPARC, an NGO working on slum rehabilitation, engaged architect Rahul Merotra to help with their commission to design 300 toilets for the slums of Mumbai. Public toilets present many problems related to gender, safety, and timing. Women are often victims of sexual harassment and have special security needs when using the bathroom, especially at night, and they also have additional needs related to children in their care. Contractors who charge a small fee for the use of toilets increase the dangers by removing light bulbs to cut costs, and maintenance of the toilets is a constant issue for the entire community. Merotra did not simply provide toilets, but rather designed an interplay between these multiple problems within a multi-story building. Solar panels on the roof provide light and safety off the grid. The floor above the toilet serves as an apartment for the caretakers, giving them a stake in cleanliness and oversight of the facility. At no extra cost, the roof platform holding the solar panels can also be a space that is lit. Now not only a place for children to do homework, it is also a community gathering spot that, because of its elevation, provides visual relief from the claustrophobia of close quarters in the streets below point 13 at every turn, arrangement, linkage, proximity, position, all offering affordance or potential, were aligned in a more productive chemistry. In another interplay, urban remnants and cast-offs, when considered together, can form a reservoir of assets valued for attributes that are not always recognized on the real estate spreadsheet. Nicholas de Monchorza's Local Code, Real Estates, Project Indexed Remnant Properties in San Francisco and other cities across the United States. He saw all the empty, publicly owned urban lots as a new form of infrastructure that could be repurposed as a network. In San Francisco, more than 1,500 of these spaces largely correspond to parts of the city experiencing some economic or environmental trouble. In New York City, all the empty properties combined would be comparable in size to Central Park. For de Monchors, these remnant public spaces are not necessarily parks, but rather serve as a connective tissue, or a distributed immune system. He has called for land banking them, saving them from future development, and creating a parallel market for non-commercial uses related to energy production, stormwater remediation, and saw or electrical upgrades. 
because these sites do not have real estate values, they make possible another market for trading and use, based not on econometrics but on spatial attributes that designers can inflect, improve, and combine. Some shrinking cities are already bundling problems in interplays that take advantage of their many vacant lots. In St. Louis, Kansas City, Flint, and Youngstown, where those lots are often filled with heavy metals, Greenprint partners can gain access to this land, leasing it on very reasonable terms precisely because it is damaged. The company uses the land for tree farms, specifically poplar trees that absorb heavy metal. The tree farms create jobs, improve the appearance and health of the neighborhood, financially and otherwise, create profit for the company, and remediate a potential property for the city tax base. 14 Even though they have the capacity to deal with environment, expectations of a radical solution or a magic bullet may make the above example seem anecdotal or insufficient in the face of climate crisis. In small ways, through some determined resourcefulness, and against all odds, the interplays manage to mitigate against overwhelming circumstances. But if comprehensive solutions tend to concentrate power or reinforce left-right political binaries that throw up obstacles to any action at all, there may be other ways of achieving scale. Rather than fully seizing the means of production, or while awaiting the success of such an effort, the following interplay looks for scale not by colluding with but, rather, by reverse-engineering the market with a protocol for subtracting development. A designer who wants to quickly remove obstacles to action might, again, look for a multiplier. The large volumes of repeatable spatial products that have been the instruments of environmental abuse can be instruments to amplify change. Population has increased as rapidly in flood-prone areas of the United States as it has in areas with less risk, and some regulations meant to deter building in these areas have even been lifted. Point 15 Sprawling suburban fabric is also increasingly built in areas at risk of wildfires even as those wildfires become more numerous and severe. Point 16 In California, wildland-urban interface areas increased by 20% from 1990 to 2010. In Colorado, the increase during the same period was over 65.17 but combine these problems of risk and sprawl with yet another problem, the mortgage formula mentioned in the introduction that is responsible for the ever-proliferating single-family home. The American house that was the mascot of the global financial crisis began, in 1934, as a precipitate of the Federal Housing Administration's long-term, low-interest mortgage, invented to stimulate banking, generate construction jobs, and provide housing during the Great Depression. The government insured the banks against borrower default, and its guidelines encouraged bankable neighborhoods that were as uniform or as much like currency as possible. In the post-war era, so-called merchant builders got blanket approvals for thousands of similar floor plans all at once. Promotional stories about decentralization, home ownership, and patriotism were accelerants in this almost agricultural production of nearly identical houses. Just as the mid-20th century house became a contagion, it might also become a counter-contagion in the face of climate change. The 30-year mortgage, designed to reduce monthly payments now has a sufficiently long temporal dimension to collide with dire climate predictions. But perhaps against expectations, houses at risk of wildfire or flood might use their risk of financial and environmental failure as an asset to be traded. Leveraging risk can facilitate relocations of building related to the effects of global warming. This exchange, even though it may involve the subtraction of building, can also address inequality, climate gentrification, and employment. 
Simply rewiring the grouping patterns in any organization can alter its chemistry or disposition. As container shipment was taking hold, the double stacking of rail cars, first designed in 1977 and more broadly used in the 1980s, led to economies of scale that significantly reduced the cost of shipping. Point 18 or prospective kidney donors who are not a good match with a friend or family members now have a better chance of helping the recipient by entering into an exchange program that pulls all the friends and relatives of all potential recipients. Point 19 now consider rewiring the ways that houses have been grouped. Mid-century U.S. suburban mortgages were grouped, approved, and underwritten by the thousands for designs that increased bankability. Before the financial crisis of 2008, they were grouped again in bundles of subprime mortgages. But what if mortgages were rated not by financial abstractions, but rather by their heavy, situated environmental values, like proximity to transit or climate risks related to flooding or wildfires? And what if these mortgages could be considered and scored in pairs or groups that encourage, even accelerate, the contraction of development away from environmental risk? Most of the information needed to score properties might draw from existing indexes of environmental risk, while also reflecting the additional intelligence of architects, urbanists, and environmentalists who can assess the changing shapes and contours of development. Some of these factors may be much simpler or more practical than obscure financial formulas, and they may offer more tangible risks and rewards. Point 20 In one scenario in the risk landscape, the owners of House A are in a flood zone, facing unsustainable insurance costs. They must sell their house at a loss and move to House B. Usually, mortgage transactions are considered separately, but if the status of House A and House B are considered together, and if the purchase of House B reduces collective risk, example, a move to high ground, the group of mortgages could be scored favorably. Continue to play the game. The neighbors of House A, Houses C, D, and E, face the same increased insurance rate. They have to sell at a great loss. But if they form a group, and if the shoreline municipality buys the properties for the purpose of clearing and creating protective revetments or firebreaks, suddenly the vacated properties are more viable, and the collective score for the entire group increases. A vulnerability is converted into an asset that protects the whole community, and clearing land rather than building on land becomes bankable. Fresh forms of vulnerability appear at the intersection of climate change and inequality. Those without sufficient capital to hold on to their property are typically subject to loss and attrition or regarded as blight that threatens the value of investment capital. They end up on the wrong end of the bulldozer. Now, in the face of climate change, wealth again has the capacity to purchase safety through relocation, elevated structures, or elaborate fireproofing. But in this interplay, those who might be victims of climate gentrification can instead leverage that wealth to their benefit. If risk can be used as an asset to attract a buyer, a seller adjacent to the CDE group might sell to someone with sufficient wealth to elevate it and use it as a vacation home. The house's appraised value increases in light of revetments and a future unobstructed view of the ocean. If that house joins the group, the investment in elevation raises the collateral state against risk and makes the entire group even less risky for the bank. By making groups, wealth is maneuvered into position as an offset and left to shoulder the inevitable risks. In addition to decreased insurance costs that already incentivize each individual move, added incentives might be awarded for any risk-reducing score. Banks might be required to waive origination points or other closing costs for mortgage groups offering environmental benefits. 
other points of leverage might come into play as the game accelerates. If groups of three or four bring transactions to the same bank, the bank might provide any number of incentives in exchange for increased volumes of business. If a move away from risk becomes popular because of its affordability, federal money may be free to address climate change investment rather than buyouts. Currently, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in the United States incentivizes retreat from flood-prone areas with higher insurance rates or property buyouts. Other buyout programs are funded by state or municipal governments. Point 21 FEMA's first relocation of climate refugees, the community of Isle de Jean Charles, Louisiana, is laudable. But, at a cost of $48 million, it and other buyout programs may be difficult to fully fund, especially as more and more powerful storms, whipped up by global warming, hit coastal areas. Small incentives with compounding effects would be much more feasible. Any state agency like FEMA might provide a one-time payment to the bank to increase the down payment or buy points to reduce the interest rate. A relatively modest contribution to a mortgage principal is then significantly compounded over the life of the mortgage. In a real reverse engineering of the mortgage form, $1,000 can become $50,000. In any of these scenarios, the unfolding interplay is something like an inverted game of Go that values clearings rather than walls. In the Chinese game of military strategy, players take turns positioning white or black stones on a grid to form defensive walls. But if clearings are valued over walls, the game is about staking out a reasonable clearing while also acquiring a spot on the surface area of that clearing. Step by step, like a ratchet that works against an immovable weight, the active forms of a subtraction protocol can alter populations of properties. Just as thousands of new suburban homes rapidly transformed the U.S. landscape, these reverse-engineered multipliers might, in sufficient volume, transform the shape of risk areas, sensitive landscapes, distended suburbs, and other places where it might be wise to put the development machine into reverse. Perhaps most important, anytime the construction industry is activated, whether to build or subtract, jobs are created. Instead of relying only on housing starts for construction jobs, the deconstruction of houses offers many other kinds of work tied to many industries. Deconstruction could have compounding effects, since the material harvested as well as the physical contraction prompts even more jobs related to everything from reuse of buildings to carbon sequestration. 4. An ecology of failure offers some surprisingly powerful cultural narratives that come with their own camouflage. In addition to being expeditious, abundantly available, and a source of employment, failure, at least initially, offers nothing shiny to capital. The assets have values that are visible only to those for whom there is a match or a need. Like the social capital credits, they cannot be stolen because they exist as a series of actions that can only be exchanged in a particular situation. Like any design, an interplay of problems can be exploited in unproductive ways, but initially, it offers a green light to get things moving. Working with problems that have been discarded by the most powerful also has some of the scrappiness and resourcefulness of political tricksters, even superbugs themselves. Tricksters plead with their opponents not to give them the very thing they want until the opponent, hoping to offer punishment, offers rewards instead. By devouring toxins or problems as raw materials, such an interplay might deafen the opponent's powers. Rather than engaging and fueling a fight, the chemist of problems finds use in its byproducts, in the detritus left on the field of combat. 
Useful are those narratives that find ways around the modern mind and its need to win ideological arguments. While a leftist critique is necessary to point out the traps and guises of capital, if, for instance, a Green New Deal fuels a need to defeat all other political ideologies and fly only under the flag of the left, efforts at climate change will remain in the old loops and binaries. Would it be equally acceptable to the left to promote deliberately inclusive persuasions palatable on the left and the right, an earth shot reminiscent of the space shot or an emergency retooling of industry not unlike the one in response to World War II? How do you establish a bold field of experimentation that relies on know-how rather than certainty? Even Franklin D. Roosevelt, expressing skepticism about economic theory, introduced his New Deal with a call for know-how, the country needs and, unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to take a method and try it, if it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. 22 Mackay was among those providing New Deal ideas and, while perhaps far too prescriptive, the ideas came with that strong cultural narrative for a new exploration of the spent territories of industrial development. And this new exploration was not only an assessment but also a design project that relied on vigorously exercising an alternative imagination on the physical components of urban and regional landscapes. Mackay's new explorer combined the talents of artist, engineer, and a scout to visualize. As crucial as actually manipulating these physical resources was seeing them differently or developing an ability to conceive of them as resources with their own repertoires and activities. Point 23 in Down to Earth, Politics in the New Climate Regime, 2018, Latou continues to wrestle with modern paradoxes. Like Mackay, he too must emerge with a new political actor, the terrestrial, with a capital T. It would spoil the newness of Latou's argument to acknowledge a prefiguring thinker like Mackay who also saw incumbent and emergent technologies as actors. Adhering to a modern habit even as he tries to dispel those habits, Latou replaces the moderns with the terrestrials. Using Donna Haraway's term worlding to distinguish from the globe of globalization, Latou writes that the terrestrial is bound to the earth and to land, but it is also a way of worlding, in that it aligns with no borders, transcends all identities. He argues that culture has not inspired the terrestrial because ecology has not known how to mobilize on a scale adequate to the stakes 24 while there may be no need to declare a single new actor, a scout, explorer, or terrestrial, most productive may be the narrative of exploration itself, the environmental exploration of changing conditions on the planet. As anthropologist Anna Zing has written, to enlarge what is possible, we need other kinds of stories, including adventures of landscapes, 25 acknowledging an abundance of human-non-human relationships drowns out the perennial accounts that measure everything in terms of left-right political platforms or protagonists like Homo economicus. Imagine the heterogeneous stories of this exploration, offering metrics for economic, medical, and environmental health. Closer to a weather forecast than a stock market report, they would map interdependencies like the relationships between cold front and jet stream or COVID-19 shutdowns and the reduction of air pollution. Interplay within this heavy portfolio would feature a set of interdependent indexes measuring disparities in wealth, deconstruction jobs, densification, carbon scoring, emissions, sea level rise, and global warming among other indicators. Harvesting failures of any kind minds a planetary geography of value different from the mineral values that have driven human industry and capital. 
a more-than-human shift in perceptions might simply perceive affordances in the interplay itself, in the activities of heavy components in this wilderness. A world brimming with problems is brimming with potential. Constantly renewed, it presents a raw and limitless field of value. Interlude 5. While refugees were streaming out of Syria during its civil war, ISIS fighters were traveling to Syria by the tens of thousands to be part of what could be called the first global digital teenage war. It was a war in which, not nations but people from all over the world, often with only their age in common, were drawn to the cradle of civilization to annihilate one another. Point one, the number of recruits traveling to Raqqa reached a peak around 2015, and many who were concentrated in Syria were eventually targeted and killed in the larger Syrian conflict. But for a time, a cocktail of monomaniacal clerics, sexual repression, violence, adventure, love, duty, and a yearning to belong, mixed with the accelerant of social media, was especially potent and effective for the teenage mind. Contemporary culture found it unfathomable that a teenager who seemed to be cheerful, accomplished, and fully engaged in Western consumerism would be willing to trade it all for the grisly activities of ISIS. Two three young female recruits from Bethnal Green in London, two of them 15 and one of them 16, captured global media attention because their story seemed to defy all reason. The press and their families emphasized that they were straight-A students who liked to shop, hang out, listen to music, and dance point three like a cross between a management course and an evangelical text, ISIS recruitment manuals encouraged relentlessly friendly one-on-one -on -one contacts. Recruiters described ISIS as an appealing form of heroism and humanitarian adventure within a loving brotherhood or sisterhood. They sent gifts like candy, or pictures of fighters in Raqqa gently holding kittens or eating Nutella. Point four surpassing irony, one powerful female recruiter believed to have recruited the Bethnal Green trio, Aksa Mahmood, had amazing success with a girl power message. Point five and the social media delivery mechanism also had special powers. If a recruit rejected the call, the ability of social media to unfriend or isolate, together with the need to belong, pressured recruits back to the fold. Point six analysts speculate that all of these approaches were designed to make recruits feel that they would be a more compelling person. Seven teenagers were offered a starring role as an adult and a hero in the ultimate movie. GoPro footage from the front, together with films of beheadings, were professionally edited with computer graphics and Hollywood production values. Point eight, alongside these ghastly practices of killing and destruction, the ISIS administration assumed a remarkably bureaucratic, managerial tone, with a branded identity in stationery and logos, contracts, infrastructure and agricultural initiatives, and even a corporate-style annual report. Point nine, the story of ISIS recruitment is stupefying but it may only seem senseless because culture has built no sense around it. Cultural labels related to Islam or Western culture will not help. The storybook histories and banal conventions to which the ISIS recruits conform, even while they tragically believe they are rebelling, will never explain their behavior. The world has always known how to send teenagers to war, but it has no stories to address this mystery. Gregory Bateson tried to explain equally mysterious compulsions or addictions like alcoholism with some dynamic markers for temperament that operate in the register of undeclared disposition. For instance, he considered binaries where two entities were either in a symmetrical relationship with oppositional, escalating, and mirroring tensions, alpha dog versus alpha dog, or a complementary binary in which one party was submissive to another, alpha dog and beta dog. While complementary relationships may ease tensions, repeated submissions can also contribute to increased stress. 
more reliably easing tensions and stabilizing relationships were reciprocal relationships in which the different parties shared the role of dominance, occasionally letting each other win. In Bateson's formulation, an addict or alcoholic exercising willpower to resist drinking was setting up a symmetrical competition with drugs or alcohol that led to escalating tensions. Rather than being helpful, willpower was then a destructive practice that exacerbated tensions. The fight of willpower against drugs could only be relieved by assuming a complementary posture, relaxing and giving into an episode of using drugs or alcohol. Or, alternatively, in a seeming paradox, the only moderately successful treatment involved was not a war against drugs and alcohol but another sort of complementary relationship, the submissive acknowledgement of powerlessness in the face of drugs and alcohol that is at the center of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Fellowship Point 10 Against Expectations, what appears to be submission is a strengthening form of recuperation. Again, just as in the scene from Richard III, when focused on dispositions rather than declarations, a world of sense may be turned upside down. At the center of both ISIS recruitment and subsequent deradicalization may be not declared ideologies but rather undeclared temperaments. Signing up to fight and perform the most unspeakable physical violence may have less to do with ideological convictions or military strategies of soldiers and nations, and more to do with vulnerable recruits. To sign up with ISIS may represent a release from competitive tensions related to xenophobia or other misunderstanding. The recruitment process skillfully manipulates those consequential temperaments, inclusion, exclusion, competition, tension, to offer the relief of entanglement in one-on-one -on -one connections offering fellowship and love. Point 11. Chapter 5. Some violence does not happen. 1. Violence is customarily regarded to be something that is marked by a punctuating event. Military battles, gunshots, or explosions capture the attention of the most familiar histories. In a world favoring declarations, an event or a piece of evidence must trigger the workings of law so that its violence can be measured as crime or combat. And history has its favorites. The fabled stories of ideological conflict, like the struggle between capitalism and socialism, is given plenty of stage time, perhaps because it can lead to military war. Vast changes in culture that result from markets, disease, new technologies, or arts are only allowed unstaged for brief intervals. The story of the assignment of the radio spectrum, for instance, is likely to be a footnote to accounts of World War I and II. In the body of the text, military and economic theatres are the dominant settings. History is also enthralled with itself. Documenting the human story takes place within a philosophical meta-loop, a theoretical structure that overwhelms or rejects fresh information. When a political scientist and economist like Francis Fukuyama writes an essay titled The End of History, he demonstrates the failure of history to describe its own persistent, common failures. Point one historians may even spar with one another as they play with the same internal conceptual devices like a classic set of toy soldiers or a favorite chess set. Each historian working within the loop can only try to top the previous generations of historians on their own terms. Theories that shape thought continue to shape thought, not because they reflect unfolding evidence in the world but because, in a world of ideation, circular logics are more captivating. History is then an operetta with the structure of an Aristotelian tragedy that is constantly anticipating its endgame. Meanwhile, some of the most destructive violence no longer fits into these historical templates, it has become environmental. Pandemics travel around the world without respect for political boundaries. 
In the United States, racism and xenophobia embedded in urban codes and morphologies are sources of sickness that intensify the lethality of a pathogen. Terrorism and espionage work in acephalous networks, an atomized military apparatus that ranges from conventional heavy artillery, to drones, to millions of small consumer electronic goods and platforms that facilitate surveillance, and social media. As discussed in the last chapter, climate-related destruction, presenting no clear enemy or front, resides in larger and larger organizations and territories with changing markers for the temperature, chemical composition, and movements of surrounding air and water. Migrations caused by this climate change, economic forces, or conflict also flow over national boundaries and experience violence of a different sort than that of wars. Latent violence in organizations of all sorts may be difficult to see, especially when it is decoupled from the organization's advertised message. Facebook originally presented itself as a smart and fun, loving platform to connect broad networks of people. By providing this service for free, the platform reflected an early characterization of the Internet as a democratizing force that made the world more information-rich through exchange. Able to tailor their communications, families and specialized groups could make those connections even more meaningful or instrumental for organizing everything from support groups to political activism. But in the campaign to be dominant and capture as much market share as possible, Facebook and other platforms introduced a consequential binary. The like-dislike and friend-unfriend filters, not just a reflection of social inclusion or exclusion, allow the company to sell data about trends and preferences. Likes can be used to exaggerate the differences between groups and sharpen the weapons of discord and hate between them, as they were in the 2016 election interference mentioned earlier. But, remarkably, debates about the situation continually return to conundrums over free speech rather than targeting the monaizing binary that artificially exaggerates that speech. Or, consider the latent violence in a combination of climatic and economic forces. The rising tide due to global warming routinely races into the shallow floodplains of Bangladesh, displacing millions. By 2050, climate change will displace 13.5 million in Bangladesh and 200 million worldwide. Point two, the displaced often migrate to Dhaka, to factory jobs in one of the free zones now notorious for having the cheapest wages, the bottom in the race to the bottom. In 2013, one of these factories, Rana Plaza, was the site of the worst industrial disaster in history, a building collapse resulting from other forms of chiseling in its construction and maintenance. In cases of international migration related to disaster or conflict, there is only the equally violent logistical solution for detention, an abstract container or legal lacunae to erase the existence of individuals. For extended periods of time measured in years, there can be no exchange and no work, only waiting in a refugee camp. And the broken solution swells to make larger and larger spaces of detention that last for longer and longer periods of time. Designers, artists, and even humanitarian organizations, it is assumed, will take up familiar limited roles adhering to national logics. Accepting a downstream assignment within a bad idea, they can only design new housing within the labor or refugee camp, or arrange the physical plant of a border crossing. Artists can only produce an expose that dramatically portrays the victimhood of the migrating individual. Recent migrations have been especially polarizing, triggering right-wing xenophobic sentiments. Migrants inconveniently reveal the problems and contradictions within national sovereignty and free trade. 
the old loops and binaries prompt misplaced nativist arguments about threats to security or loss of jobs and national culture. Free zones, strange cousins of the refugee camp, have even been advanced as a solution for putting refugee populations to work without creating domestic job shortages. Point three: It does not matter if these arguments about jobs are false. Nations continue shadowboxing within legal regimes that they have crafted for their own advantage. And in the absence of a murder or a body washed ashore, the nation is portrayed as the victim. These and other gradients of potential violence may not reach the threshold of a single violent event. Indicating a like on a digital platform is not typically considered to be a matter of temperament. When, to remain intact, a nation houses refugees in detention facilities or segregated dormitories, the efforts are treated as neutralizing accommodations rather than sources of brewing tension. Exercising the free trade that empowers global corporations while disempowering labor is not considered to be a violent, even lethal, act. Nor is easing regulations on polluters, tinkering with mathematical abstractions to falsely value real estate, or fighting to win an ideological argument. But while it may seem unlikely, these situations, like many described in previous chapters, have an inherent temperament, a potential to instigate or relieve violence or conflict. In all these cases, there are blatant imbalanced power dynamics, with their drumbeat of daily effects but often no dramatic visuals and stories. It is as if there is nothing to see in the suburb, highway, or refugee camp, and no way to tell the story. Without collapse, crisis, or overt clashes, there is no evidence of the violence imminent in disposition. The bank must foreclose on the house. The factory must collapse with its workers inside. The workers or migrants housed in camps must die, or they must rise up and revolt. A wildfire or hurricane must destroy sprawling subdivisions. For the baby human, it is as if nothing is happening until the loud bang is heard. Perhaps because there may be nothing to point to, no image, law, declaration, or ideological ultimate, a constant aggression may be undetectable or impossible to prove. Somehow evidence of potential violence, disposition, or temperament is less authoritative, consequential, or powerful than the most primitive forms of violence that are always able to draw attention. For many forces related to inequality, climate change, or migration, there is no story that analyzes the non-economic, non-military chemistries of causation. 2. Medium design works on the histories of things that do not happen. In an inversion of declarative histories that chart discrete events or transgressions of law, a focus on disposition enhances the ability to detect and adjust latent temperaments in organizations. Organizations have inherent capacities to include, exclude, nurture, or harm, even in the absence of an event or declaration. This violence does not happen because it is ever-present as a latent property or an ongoing series of actions. This history of things that do not happen is one of continuation, with no successive or superior knowledge, no telos, and no beginning or end. It relegates the stories of national and ideological wars to the footnotes. In the body of the text is a wealth of consequential social and technical detail that informs the chemistry of problems in all their combinations. The overt conflict that, it is believed, must be the driver of any narrative is asked to wait in the wings. Wandering out of the military and economic theatres, the narrative looks for another kind of air or logic or anti-history, and evidence of temperament spins the story on different pivots in unexpected directions. 
this alternative history might be structured more like an epidemiology or a branching set of thresholds and points of leverage, and it might be largely concerned with how to modulate violence in organizations by making them information-rich. The focus might shed light on why some political stalemates can suddenly shift in moments of metastasis or remission while others remain immovable. Johann Galton considers this structural violence to be anything that obstructs human potential mentally or physically. He makes distinctions between whether or not violence is personal or structural, direct or indirect, intentional or unintentional, manifest or latent, and whether or not it is physical or psychological or enacted with negative and positive influences. The detention of a migrating individual is not just a waiting period but an act that impedes potential for those individuals detained. A positive influence, like receiving the rewards of a consumer society, can nevertheless constrain individual choices and development. One group may unintentionally infect another with a deadly disease, or a form of structural violence might oppress by withholding rights to an individual. For Galtung, expanding the conception of violence means that peace can also be more than just the absence of war. Peace has to signal the absence of structural violence as well. He asks questions about whether direct personal violence is sufficient or necessary to abolish direct structural violence, and vice versa. While the rising up of personal violence against structural violence is the fabled cure of the revolutionary, he considers a search for ways in which it might not be indispensable. Galtung also asks whether it is possible to eliminate both direct and indirect forms of violence, or whether one or the other will always be present. While there were glimmers of possibility in non-violent protest or diplomatic arms control, it might always be the case, he writes, that the devil is driven out with Beelzebub. For Rob Nixon extends Galtung's thinking and widens its range to consider other agencies as well as violence enacted slowly over time. Galtung's theory, he argues, bears the impress of its genesis during the high era of structuralist thinking that tended toward a static determinism. Slow violence can begin to account for the degradation of the environment and respond to both radical changes in our geological perception and our changing technological experiences of time. Nixon also considers how the poor, who are disproportionately on the receiving end of the bloodless, slow-motion violence that often fails to capture the world's attention, are not given proper authority as witnesses. Point five by considering other agencies and temporal frames, Galtung and Nixon join many of the thinkers assembled in this book who consider potentials that need not result in an event that can be witnessed. Ryle refers to the clown's performance as a disposition rather than an act, saying that it is not happening at all. Six Bateson describes the switch as a change or delta rather than an object. Point seven and Bateson also describes degrees of escalating or diminishing tension that are associated with different binaries, symmetrical, complementary, or reciprocal, as unfolding relationships or gradients of disposition. As is clear from the interludes, the histories of latent temperament often stray from or even invert familiar plot lines. It is not just that organizations are saying something different from what they are doing. The oil company can produce an ad bathed in green sentiments. Richard III can plead his love. There are other inversions. As in the case of Richard's seduction or Bateson's descriptions of addiction, fighting can be capitulation. Alternatively, as in the Spartacus episode, what appears to be capitulation or submission becomes a surprising countermove to disarm a destructive force. Similarly, with addiction, relinquishing the fight may give the addict some traction against the disease. 
Return to the parent with squabbling children described in the introduction to this book. Rather than litigating the argument, the parent redesigns the physical and spatial human and non-human medium to blunt any prompts to violence. Their techniques are familiar and yet also maddeningly counter to the familiar scripts for ideological fights. In the same way that medium design can manipulate parallel markets of value, it can, like the parents, also shape the undeclared dispositions that may even be more consequential than declared political platforms. 3. The following interplays explore organizations in which a shift in disposition and temperament is consequential. They revisit some of the medium design perspectives considered thus far, generating interplay rather than solution, entangling networks, and multiplying problems, with particular attention to moves that reduce violence in organizations. The final interplay looks cumulatively at the issues taken up throughout the book by focusing on the temperament of migrations related to inequality, new technologies, mobility, climate change, and conflict but it alters those temperaments by treating migration as an environmental exploration like that discussed in the last chapter, a global mobilization that is unlike war and already underway. The first of these interplays considers temperament in an exchange between digital and spatial networks. While they stage no overt or direct forms of violence, the symmetrical face-offs between hackers and the international security apparatus are fraught with tension. Fortifying against government intrusion, hackers fight to preserve open and private exchanges for free speech and dissent. But the security apparatus, like the NSA, National Security Agency, and its Five Eyes partners, takes a similar stance as warriors against cyber attacks. Point eight, while both hacker networks and government security networks are extremely sophisticated, with abundant multiplicity and planetary scale, the temperaments that attend them may be more elementary. Both the hacker and the state often assume symmetrical binary dispositions like those that Bateson describes, with their escalating tensions and mirroring behaviors. Each feel justified in spying on the other and encrypting against the other. Each claim violations of rights and freedoms. Each wish to draw into greater and greater realms of secrecy, even as they retaliate with publicized attacks against the other. Each flaunt their prowess, their airtight security or their media savvy. In this oscillation between loop and binary dispositions, each side is the controlling force, and each side is the victim, each is on offense, and each is on defense. Both networks make a utopia of the realm they protect. The nation is pure and forthright, and it must be protected against unpatriotic acts. The hacker regards the digital world as a higher plane that holds out the promise of autonomy, and liberty, and forms polity unfulfilled in the heavy world. The Tor network presents a case of shifting temperaments in relation to this standoff between hackers and government security. Tor encrypts emails by relaying them between Reuters. It is used by journalists, whistleblowers, and anyone else who wants to protect against government surveillance. While it received some of its initial development funding from the US government, it became an NSA target and was characterized as part of the dark web of criminal elements. Point nine in the aftermath of the Snowden leaks and one of the first rounds of WikiLeaks, Tor, of necessity, squared off against government surveillance and was as intent on preserving privacy as the government was intent on preserving security. Both networks sometimes have the disposition of an all-channel, open web, and sometimes that of binary opposition. When in binary opposition to each other, the increase of security on both sides also increased the risks for both. 
but the temperament of opposition shifted in perhaps counterintuitive ways when the Kilton Public Library in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, publicly announced its decision to house a tour relay. Kilton received a government security warning encouraging it to shut down the network. The library put the question to a community vote, and the community voted to restore the tour relay. Point 10 The episode prompted the Library Freedom Project, a movement among libraries to ensure privacy on computers housed in public libraries. As members of TorServers.net and the Tor Anonymity Network, the project educates its members about surveillance networks while embedding more relays in more and more public spaces and democratic processes. Not unlike the Spartacus episode, Kilton Public Library presents another counterintuitive outcome from the realm of disposition and temperament. Kilton abandons the face-off with the NSA, and even as it increases the exposure of the network, it creates its own strengthening camouflage. Rather than freedom and autonomy, Kilton chose entanglement and anonymity. Or, recalling Bateson's thoughts on binaries, a reciprocal exchange eases the tensions of a symmetrical binary. Not a pure, untouched digital network but an entangled interdependence between spatial, physical, legal, and political networks, with mixtures of different species of information, invites users into more expansive, secure, and information-rich territories. Point 11 or, consider an interplay that modulates violence by rewiring potentials. The Avondale neighborhood in Cincinnati, Ohio, has one of the highest rates of infant mortality in the United States. The neighborhood is low-income and largely African-American, and it presents an especially severe case within a general problem. Infant mortality among African-American mothers of any income or education level is higher than that of their white counterparts. Environmental forms of stress related to racism, as well as racism within the doctor-patient relationship, are possible causes. Public housing projects in neighborhoods like Avondale have historically concentrated and exacerbated poverty. Many were the result of urban renewal that wiped away a historic fabric with many different houses and owners, replacing it with a solution, mid-rise to high-rise buildings poorly managed by a single government or municipal agency. The violence resides not only in the destruction of the fabric but in the monovalent arrangements that, not unlike detention centers, reduce choices and urban encounters. In these environments, poverty and related issues of addiction and crime often seem inescapable. But Avondale found a way to reduce infant mortality by finding an unlikely asset in the concentration of mothers facing similar obstacles. With the help of other community organizations, managers of housing non-profit the community builders started a matchmaking program that linked mothers together in mentoring programs. The program pairs mothers with other women in the community who serve as their health champion, providing guidance and support not found within professional health routines. Point 12 Like the kidney donor network that benefited from widening the pool of needs and rewiring the linkage pattern, a housing project, itself deemed to be a problem, became a resource within a newly designed ecology of exchange and proximity. Another interplay considers the violence latent in any neighborhood that, because of racism or xenophobia, is consistently starved of health, welfare, security, and mobility. Imagine a community segregated and marooned by an urban highway like those mentioned in Chapter 3. Perversely, in the United States, the institution regarded to be the delivery system for that community safety and welfare is often another form of violence, policing that creates a carceral regime of the neighborhood itself. And when this violence on top of violence fails to reduce violence, the answer is, again, violence, an inflated prison system that almost becomes continuous with the neighborhood. 
this environmental violence surrounds and overwhelms the violence marked by any single event. During Black Lives Matter protests that reignited and swelled in the summer of 2020, support galvanized around interplays for defunding or abolishing the police, proposals with sufficient rhetorical strength to locate the source of violence in the policing monoculture itself. They argue that state or municipal funds would be better spent on an array of integrated institutions and professionals delivering education, housing, health care, emergency intervention, and counseling among other things. Like the social capital credits that make needs into productive ecology or like the green infrastructure projects that make jobs and revenue out of heavy metals and vacancy, these alternatives to policing become sturdy through entanglement. Point 13 The final interplay, about migration as environmental exploration, synthesizes a number of components from interplays previously discussed. The last chapter described the environmental exploration of a terra incognita, the planet's remainder technologies and environmental problems, with a view to designing productive ecologies between those problems. This chapter considers migrations of all kinds as well as a number of actors who have been floating through the chapters and interludes, teenage soldiers, terrestrials, scouts, explorers, and activists. Some of planetary mobilizations previously discussed embody dangerous temperaments, and the default temperament of conflict is all too easy. Climate change efforts are trapped in ideological binaries. Migration is regarded to be a crisis that triggers xenophobic rejection. And the global digital teenage war too quickly converts young energy to the old wars of nations and empires. Even the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been consistently likened to war. But crucial to this discussion of temperament is discovering other attributes of mobilization that are not like war. Things like climate change and pandemic have no front lines or discrete events. The points of contact are environmental or surrounding, and the violence is gradient. COVID-19 has allowed the world to explore the potentials, both destructive and creative, of shutting down the planet by restricting movement. Migrations allow the world to explore the potentials, again both destructive and creative, of turning on the flow the movement. Considering temperament and a combinate chemistry of problems, can you design an interplay in the spirit of exploration or expedition that merges the migrations of conflict, inequality, and climate change to address these very issues? Since most migrating individuals are young, prompting fears about a lost generation, can a mobilization of the young be not war? And if, above all, medium design is not about fixing position but getting things moving, can migration be a constant asset, not a crisis but a streaming mobile engine of environmental exploration? The terra incognita in this expedition is a commons. There are common physical assets, like chemical atmospheres, that are difficult to territorialize, and there are problematic remainders that markets and nations discard. But there is also something like a mobile commons that Mimi Scheller writes about, a commons of relationships, activities, and movements as well as heavy objects and solids. Making common into an active verb, Scheller describes a more mobile imaginary of the commons, or commoning, as a political action, and one which the contemporary moment demands. What if the commons were not just about the sharing of a territory, a space, a resource, or a product, but could also refer to the affordances and capabilities for practices of moving, traveling, gathering, assembling, as well as pausing and being present? What if we conceived of mobility itself as a commons, and the commons as mobile, 14 mobility, with or without travel to different locations, can generate rich exchanges that modulate conditions around the world? 
moving upstream from the sharp end of migration, before a moment that triggers refugee status, an interplay might break the loops and binaries of nations and markets by multiplying the one-to-one -one connections that are responsible for so many successful migrations. Point 15. While there are those who want to permanently resettle, this expedition may be for those who never wanted the citizenship or asylum that another nation withholds or reluctantly bestows. Neither do they need the victimhood, racism, segregation, or bad jobs that attend migrations. They want more than the choice to change their citizenship, and they do not want to contribute to brain drain in their own country. They want another form of cosmopolitan mobility. Temperamentally, withdrawing the request for citizenship also robs the right wing of its chief argument about nationalism and jobs. If migrating individuals do not want to stay, the right can only throw itself against an open door. Again, what seems like a submission is instead an empowering move that uses the one-to-one -to, -one to move away from the one and the binary toward the many. Need, not good-natured volunteerism, fuels the movements of an environmental exploration. There are no haves and have-nots, only needs and problems to put together in trusted relationships. There is no privileged direction of travel, since different cultural, political, and climate problems exist everywhere. And there are no solutions to migration issues, only more than 70 million responses, each corresponding to the needs of a traveling person. Broadening what constitutes education and training, migrating individuals can form a global network for exchanging information, expertise, and physical redesign in flexible blocks of time. Global capital can migrate around the world, looking for advantageous conditions that change over time. And the wealthiest young people can go to university anywhere in the world, giving them a new fork in the road. Similarly migrating individuals might orchestrate seasonal journeys to enrich their lives and confront the very factors that are causing migrations or mobility restrictions. The legal apparatus that works so hard to expel people might focus instead on recognizing strings of time journeys to acquire experience before returning home, or more robust procedures for granting international credentials in exchange for this work. While, for some, a fixed destination is appropriate, for others, there is only certainty about the next 10 years of their child's education, or the next four years of college, or a need for professional reaccreditation. For still others, there might be a chance to design a global life for 15 years of changing locations and educational opportunities. Many problems are ripe for this matchmaking of needs. Given the graying of the world's fishing fleets, agricultural industries, and construction trades, there are opportunities for matching younger and older people, or able-bodied and disabled, in exchange for expertise that will otherwise be lost. Global networks of farmers already exchange experience about planting everything from sweet potatoes to flowers to animal husbandry. There are shortages of medical and other professionals who can complete parts of their education, internships, or research when matched with situations of need. Countries hoping to retool their economy in order to adapt to changing conditions can also recruit outside talent. Point 16 And there are a growing number of exchanges in which correspondents working on forests, wildfires, and sea level rise share expertise about the state of the planet and its changing conditions due to global warming. They index the world in terms of temperature, crops, forest cover, and mineral deposits, among many other things. A network of locations around the world with shallow floodplains, or forests sitting over oil deposits, or susceptibility to wildfires are all inching closer to each other. 
In these exchanges, cities might bargain with their underexploited spaces of failure to attract a changing influx of talent and resources, matching their needs with the needs of mobile people to generate mutual benefits. While many nativist political platforms argue that migrating individuals exacerbate unemployment in already depressed areas, the opposite is true. Again, it is the segregation of problems that creates attrition and depression in cities. Many shrinking cities in the United States suffer from dormancy and inactivity until they are revived by migrating individuals who create new needs, new customers, and new enterprises that get things moving again. Point 17 Some cities are developing green infrastructures to address climate issues, and the expertise needed to engineer and build these responses presents yet another opportunity for training. Point 18 By assessing its problems as assets, the city already makes a more information rich urban network. Cities have temporary needs, but they also have housing stock that serves different populations at different stages of life, and territories that shrink and expand with the changing fortunes of the market. In addition to wage-earning projects, the situated values of spatial variables offer in-kind contributions so that space and time, as well as failures and opportunities for training, might mix and create temporary jobs as well as no-work, non-market exchanges. Again, this will surely go wrong. All the precedents for migrations and global exchanges of this kind offer nothing but cautions about trafficking and labor abuse among other things. Point 19 But since these dangers are already present in abundance, what sorts of interplay strengthen existing networks with more robust choices, corroborating interdependencies or checks and balances that would increase security for all parties in the exchange? Nothing works, and there are some interplays that provide more relief than others, but few things could be worse than the detentions of the contemporary status quo. 4. The most difficult cultural narrative for the modern mind may be one without conflict. What stories about organization outside of national sovereignty can the history books offer, except dramatic portrayals of empires and bloody caliphates that must control the universe and destroy others to exist? Peace is even seen as the necessary corollary of war within the modern nation. And many kinds of non-military work take on the labels, if not the organizational dispositions, of the military. To name just a few, consider the Civilian Conservation Corps of the New Deal, the Ghana Workers' Brigade and the Peace Corps of the 1960s, or the contemporary Global Brigades. Corps, brigades, and cohorts with uniforms and pledges are all too prevalent. Young environmental activists and their targets reflect back the customary oppositional techniques of ideological activism. An eco-terrorist group like Earth Liberation Front, ELF, has the motto, If you build it, we will burn it. Fighting fire with fire, ELF burns down McMansions and sabotages industrial sites that encroach upon sensitive landscapes. Point 20 Inspired by the protests of teenager Greta Thunberg, a truly global movement like Youth for Climate is gathering adherents among children, teenagers, and adults, and along politically polarized lines. Point 21 Predictably reinforcing the binary. Some patronizing world leaders tell the teenagers who they once might have sent to war to stop all this nonsense and get back to their. Lessons.22 Teenagers facing climate change are arguably fighting for their survival, but culture finds it impossible to give authority to anything other than the customary military or economic battlefront. Dominant cultural narratives may be even more difficult to alter than the heavy physical material of the world. The modern mind finds it ridiculously optimistic or naive to imagine marching away from the front or deploying the national logistical apparatus to save lives and property at risk of climate change.
the modern stance, accustomed to struggling against its foe until the apocalypse, finds this path of least resistance completely preposterous. Sometimes it is necessary to run headlong toward a concentration of power in order to collide with it and break it up. While not abandoning these binary political fronts, what are the cultural narratives that might allow you to wriggle between obstructions without triggering the violence of the loop or the binary? Not a campaign of war, the environmental exploration described here is a boundless, high-stakes expedition into a terra incognita at the intersections of inequality, climate, and migration. Temperamentally, this expedition would require a complete rewiring of deeply ingrained human habits. In this theater of activities, sovereignty, as it has been used historically, may not even be a relevant term. Responsibility for larger territories and atmospheres that nations have spoiled or abandoned overwhelms those claims. The alteration of gigantic landscapes of weather, natural resources, and climate calls for an adventure that might even make war seem tedious and puny by comparison. The lethality of climate risks comes with the same heightened life and death risks that involve physical encounters with a dramatically changing landscape. Nixon asks how culture can turn the long emergences of slow violence into stories dramatic enough to rouse public sentiment and warrant political intervention, 23 but this adventure also replaces the blunt, violent, and repetitive activities of the human's petty wars with a need for massive global cooperation and shared intelligence. While it is nearly impossible for culture to conceive of such a thing, what if, in addition to the necessary and righteous fight, the cultural narrative was about distracting attention away from conflict with startling physical stories of spatial practices? If the cultural imagination can be gripped by reports of a coming storm or a spreading virus, imagine cultural stories of design that encounter the full force of the climate. For instance, in the wake of Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico scrambled for a year to restore electricity, and the only work sanctioned by FEMA was the repair of existing infrastructure, like electrical poles, that would be in danger of falling over again even in a tropical storm. But the very windiness that sometimes threatens the island is also a source of renewable energy. A field of wind turbines designed to withstand a Category 2 or 3 hurricane might provide a more reliable, even uninterrupted source of energy. But they also potentially serve as a baffle to reduce damage from hurricane winds. Point 24 Are there similar situations where the direst consequences of climate change might actually fuel the means to alleviate them, if matched in the right interplay? Reverse the roles in the scene of the parent who works on spatial temperament to reduce tension between squabbling children, and make the children closer to the age of the teenagers who have appeared in these discussions. Maybe the youngest explorers know how to shift temperament by embarking on an adventure that satisfies teenage energies while also distracting from the pyrotechnics of war that draw the attention of adults. They can rebel by deliberately not rebelling, and by obligingly taking on the problems that their elders have left behind. They will not make fools of themselves with a storybook caliphate. And the adventurous expedition within an ecology of problems defangs any patronizing aggression. Maybe those who are engineering a passage through the world are trusted to be the new global leaders, diplomats, and strategists. Their special credentials include knowledge of multiple languages and cultures as well as techniques to ease tensions and violent dispositions. Even easier, and therefore more implausible, is a temperamental repositioning of the military or logistical apparatus to facilitate a flow away from conflict. The moments of unrest and warfare around the world might be tragic, but the moment when people move away from them might be moments of celebration. 
Not only would human resources be streaming toward the rest of the world, but the contested subject of the fight would be walking away from the fight and starving it of the attention it craves and requires in order to exist. The move to quarantine during a global pandemic rehearses this potential. If the evacuation of people and resources was as carefully engineered and thoroughly financed as the invasion of territory, warmongers could routinely find themselves in a tussle over an empty box. Medium design serves this environmental exploration because it favors interplay that activates mobility with no sense of victory or loss. If political fights have become more deadlocked as they have become more polarized, maybe overcoming inertia is prized above all. Turning on your heel and marching away from the physical fronts of war would be impossible for humanities that are addicted to head-on confrontation. It would be too easy. But in medium design, marching away from the fight and toward a massive, abundant field of environmental failure is strangely reliable and enriching. If history is usually enthralled with binary fights, this history would focus on those organizational shifts that ease tension. Replacing the national anthems might be songs about arrival and the diffusion of fear. This is the history of things that don't happen and should not always work. Afterward. You know how to be unreasonable. Medium design is another way to work on the world. It finds special resources for that work on the flip side of some obdurate illusions of the modern mind that stifle change. Over and over in the discussion, this perspective appends cultural defaults, suggests counterintuitive approaches, and presents surprising outcomes. Everyone is a designer, but the most practical things you know, even most of what you know, about how to design is not usually treated as authoritative knowledge. Medium design relies on common sense or cultural muscle memory, the everyday practicalities of managing your environment with know-how. But the smart modern mind that needs to be right is often dumb to this knowledge. Strangely, what pool players, cyclists, clowns, dogs, chemists, cooks, and parents know does not scale up to influence approaches to the world's most difficult dilemmas. Medium design works on the assumption that there is no all-encompassing ideological system from which all power and violence originates. Superbugs are, among other things, evidence of other irrational desires, strange loyalties, and scrambled ideologies that are sources of violence and pathogens of authoritarianism. While culture is often paralyzed by the most immaterial habits of mind, like its ideological loops and binaries, medium design finds alternative variables and values with which to parse the world. And these other markets and terms of exchange, present in the heaviest, physical materials, atmospheres, and spatial relationships, are only more heightened and available in a world facing extremes of inequality and climate change. While the design profession is usually regarded to be a handmaiden to the market, medium design does not always have to wait on a client with a sufficient accumulation of capital. Capital is not the only force with a license to index the world. Design can begin now, with multiple varied experiments to trade these heavy values and temperaments, proximities, relationships, properties, potentials, and risks in relation to urban neighborhoods, flood zones, transportation networks, regional territories, and patterns of migration. While medium design works with shapes and solids in space, the real object of the design is interplay, a protocol for activity between these solids and potentials. Rather than only registering information in lexical, geometric, or quantitative expressions that present a stable and reliable solution, medium design uses forms of interplay to generate a combinate chemistry of spatial elements. 
Interplay is an expression of interactivity within an ecology over time. Culture often gives authority to solutions or right answers, but these are not precise enough or sturdy enough, because they lack the very things that the modern mind hopes to avoid, indeterminacy, latency, entanglement, and failure. Solutions do not have a long enough temporal dimension to respond to changing conditions and new failures. Interplay is designed to remain in place to accommodate change and counter abuses. When things go wrong, as they inevitably will, a cooperative neighborhood arrangement, a switching protocol between transportation modalities, or a global network exchanging intelligence and training have a better chance of reacting to a juster relationship. Designing interplays between these components works on the faders and toggles of organization mentioned in the introduction. Because interplay sometimes works with latent potentials that may never be expressed as an event, or because it plays out as a gradient unfolding over time, it may not garner the confidence and currency reserved for finding the right answer. But for precisely those reasons, it may be, paradoxically, more stealthy and expedient. Power often decouples its message from its real activities. All companies advertise with green sentiments. Populist leaders concentrate power. But, similarly, a switching protocol can entice capital and divert revenues to public transportation without announcement. Any design that works with latent potentials need not always declare its political leanings if they might draw fire or create obstacles in a politically polarized climate. Rather than autonomy and freedom, medium design looks for anonymity and entanglement. Entanglement reinforces check and balances, and it also allows change to travel, multiply, and gain scale. These forms of interplay may be as fast as the runaway development they work to reverse engineer. Materials for work in this medium are perhaps more accessible in direct relation to how problematic they are or to what degree they fail. Problems, ordinarily considered to be deficits, advance forward as assets on an alternative spatial ledger in which both positive and negative attributes are valuable. These are the unlikely terms of medium design exchanges, risks of flood and wildfire, problems of racial injustice and inequality, or obstacles to mobility that have the potential to initiate change. Interplay as a form for orchestrating activity is confusing for the modern mind, that prefers objects with names. There is nothing to see. There is no new technology or gadget to display, which is the usual signal of innovation, and no modern swagger about the superiority of technology. Because the most sophisticated technologies, like contemporary digital technologies, have been shown to deliver crude dispositions, medium design looks for sophistication in the protocols that organize interplay between emergent and incumbent technologies. As the site of these mixtures, space is itself a medium of innovation. Since nothing works in medium design, the work is never done. There is no homeostasis, only more ways to keep things moving. Space is something that is piloted, cajoled, tended, or activated to form more interdependent relationships, and the designer is flying a plane that never lands. If the smart modern mind is often dumb to some practical forms of knowledge, the common superbug is helpful in demonstrating just how dumb. Superbugs seem to instinctually know how to trick the modern mind and its tendency to spin around loops and binaries, the need to be right and square off against an enemy. They obligingly provide some suggestive symptoms. Medium design can work not only on the dominant cultural logics but also on the superbugs that manipulate those logics to their own ends. Against expectation, design might be unreasonable, scrappy, and inconsistent. 
superbugs lie, mirror accusations, and confuse ideological creeds. Climate change is a hoax, or democratic support of public transit is a diamond-encrusted form of self-enrichment for political elites. And there are countless other similar rhetorical inversions or traps. It is not the content of a lie that matters, but rather how the lie lands and bounces. Confidence gains activate culture in ways that may run counter to the message expressed, beyond content, stories have disposition. Similarly, the most successful and relentless activism is both ideological and dispositional, mixing declaration with action that is less predictable, traceable, or stable. As a final activist episode, consider recent pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong that use both digital signals and physical presence to orchestrate a special resilience and stealth. Protesters send one-to-one -one Bluetooth signals to those within about 100 meters, 330 feet, or broadcast a message to all users in the vicinity. They adopt the disposition of water in all its phases saying, you can't shoot water, harden like ice, gather like dew, or scatter like mist, one. And the water can also boil to riot for social justice. But the activism that is purely ideological and declarative, or only prelude to a political ultimate, often assumes a predictable binary disposition. The water cannot be mist or gas or cascade, it can only boil. And while hoping to intensify pressure on power, it may be releasing that pressure, like the addict who succumbs to a competition with drugs. Reified as event and mirroring the temperament of power, this form of protest is consequently the most easily mimicked and hijacked to serve the very power it opposes. White suburban boys playing soldier can endanger the careful plans of the Black Lives Matter movement. Trump can send in the National Guard or a mega militia to incite the violence he needs for his own messaging. Bussing in imposters, a dictator can stage a riot useful for propaganda. The biggest mystery of all is that the brutality of loops and binaries, however tedious, flat, and worn, can continue to attract attention for the political superbug. What does it take to drain away this sustaining lifeblood in a way that withers rather than nourishes? How tired do the scripts of human babyhood have to be? Or, from fossil fuels and political strongmen to free zones and detention camps, how boring does violence have to be? This medium design that is never finished and offers no single object to look at can nevertheless tell more compelling and contagious stories and pull off more impossible tricks. First, design, now closer to its other associations with craftiness and calculation, is no longer merely a subject of policy and planning bureaucracy. Rather it is a subject for popular culture stories, with a chance of drawing attention away from the narratives to which culture is addicted. And design has as one of its resources a surprising and impossible narrative form, a story without conflict. Culture seems not to be able to conceive of either ideation or narrative without conflict. For the modern who must struggle against its foe toward the apocalypse, the history of violence that does not happen is almost unthinkable, and to some, it might even seem like a betrayal of principles. But more important than purity and consolidated beliefs may be overcoming binary divides to address the larger goal of reducing violence and increasing justice. The interludes in this book rehearse working in this world turned upside down, where narratives may run counter to expectations to foster dissensus and break up stubborn habits. Failure can signal winning. No, can express positive energy. Radical purity can be temperamentally conservative. Defensive postures increase risk. Fighting is a marker of capitulation. Submission gets the upper hand.
exposure creates camouflage. And, at the end of this book, these episodes no longer seem like only anecdotal or fleeting political successes. They are embedded in ordinary surrounding spaces that you know how to design no matter what you're training. The existential risks of inequality and climate change, together with all of their precipitates in migration, structural racism, pandemic, sea level rise, wildfires, and the destruction of sensitive landscapes is a story of titanic forces. It is a vast wilderness of failure for exploration, sustained physical exertion, streaming global manpower, and curiosity about endless experiments that can multiply without a universal denominator. While the most well-rehearsed ideological approaches to activism must often lead, they can work hand-in-hand with an activism of disposition that designs relationships between the heavy physical components of space. While the conventional design apparatus may also remain in play, there are so many more aesthetic pleasures and challenges in a spatial medium. And these spatial models can offer to a broad audience techniques for modulating power in organizations of all kinds, adjusting potentials and temperaments, reducing imminent violence, checking concentrations of authority, and making the urban matrix more information-rich. The work does not need a name, and you already know how to do it. But it would be something like medium design. Acknowledgements. This book is indebted to many. Thanks to Leo Hollis, the team at Verso, and cover designer Iham Graui. Thanks also to those who were kind enough to read the manuscript or write on its behalf, Arjun Apajurai, Wendy Chun, Jean-Louis Cohen, Ed Demenberg, Ike Herman, John Durham-Peters, Vijayanthi Rao, Dubrovka Sikulik, Haito Style, and Tun Vidler. Seminars and lecture courses at Yale University, the European Graduate School, and Strelka have provided an opportunity to rehearse the material in this book. Dean Deborah Burke at Yale University's School of Architecture provided support for projects related to the research included here. Thank you to Benjamin Bratton and Strelka Press for publishing a 2018 ebook essay entitled Medium Design. Thanks also to the institutions that sponsored related lectures or exhibitions. Funding and recognition from the Schelling Architecture Foundation and United States Artists continues to support ongoing research. Students and former students have assisted with research or contributed to related projects and classes. Among these are, Carolina Keetel, Neelas Anderson, Brian Cash, Miguel Sanchez, Enkelin, Adam Feldman, Swarnab Ghosh, Claire Gorman, Karina Gormley, Theodosios Isaias, Samantha Jaff, Alexander Kim, Jeffrey Liu, Paul Lorenz, Laura Popolado, Maggie Zhang, and Matthew Wagstaff. Finally, many thanks to colleagues and friends for their support or their invitations to contribute to lectures and dialogues, Julieta Aranda, A. J. Artemel, Nick Axel, Anadena Barrows, Martin Beck, Nicolai Boyadjiv, Craig Buckley, Claudio Bueno, Francesco Cassetti, Beatrice Colomina, Santiago Del Hero, Nicolas de Monchors, Francisco Diaz, Christopher Fynsk, David Garcia, James Graham, Stephen Graham, Nicolaus Hirsch, Beth Hughes, Amal Issa, Andres Jark, Bernd Kasparek, Irina Lekozovova. Laura Kurgan, Lara Caldi, Anel Louis, Ligia Nobre, Trevor Paglin, Sibyl Peters, Lorenzo Pezzani, Peg Ross, Kim Rigiel, Mardi Sabot, Yara Sackfulhate, Susan Shupley, Felicity Scott, Mimi Scheller, Dean Simpson, Imra Seaman, Pelin Tan, Ioana Theo Carapulu, Ben Vickers, Anton Vidokal, Mark Wasiuta, Mark Wigley, Mabel Wilson, Brian Kwan Wood, and Mimi Zyger. This book is dedicated to Patricia McNamara, Aunt Pat, 